Uh, we are in the midst of this, uh, this sermon series in the book of Acts. If you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we're turning today to the, the fourth chapter of Acts. We're going to read verses 1 through 22. And just as a reminder, what's happened so far in this, this little saga of the, the book of Acts, um, Peter and John uh, looked intently at this lame man. They healed him. He had been lame from birth for 40 some odd years. Uh, healed him in the name of Jesus. Crowds gathered around in Solomon's portico, just ecstatic about what they had seen and heard. And um, this morning, we're going to learn of a new crowd that, that comes, though. And this crowd is not quite as ecstatic or friendly. Uh, Peter and John are thrown into jail, and uh, they are put before a council of religious elites. So let's read chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, and see what this has for our lives today. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple And the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the word of men, uh, the the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that as a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God. Amen. Growing up, um, I once snuck away from my brother's baseball game to go hang out with the wrong crowd. My older brother was at bat. My dad was coaching, my mom was watching, and I was bored to tears. So I asked if I could play under the bleachers, which would have been a great idea, except for on the way down, I got invited by these three older kids to go throw rocks in a nearby canal. 
If you don't know what a canal is, think like waterway, like a ditch, but much deeper and wider. And I knew I shouldn't have been there. In my hometown, it was well known that canals carried an undertow that would kill you. From an early age, we were all taught in elementary school, those waterways are off limits. But I was with the cool kids. So I joined in. When I came back, um, my mom saw mud on my boots and she asked me where I had been. Before I could even come up with a good story, my twin brother ratted me out. But I still remember my mother's words. She said, Ryan, if all the other kids decided to jump off the cliff, would you do it too? And I remember in my smart aleck ways thinking, I don't know, mom, do I get a parachute? But as we got back in the car, she looked at me and she said something to this effect. She said, Ryan, who you hang out with affects eventually who you become. You remember that lesson growing up? I mean, it comes in all different shapes and sizes, but we've all been taught it somewhere along the way, right? You are the company that you keep. Tell me who your friends are. I'll tell you all about who you are. If you hang with wolves, it won't be long before you start to howl. See, whatever the expression, this is common knowledge. We often look like those who we hang out with. We emulate those who we follow. We, we begin to speak like them, live like them. You agree? Hmm. Here's what I want us to see this morning. Peter and John have performed this miracle. A lame man walks for the first time in 40 years of his life. The crowd, as I said, they're gathered around him in complete amazement. Peter now uses this opportunity, seizes upon it to bring the gospel to God's people, just as Jesus had taught him. But this morning, a new crowd emerges. And this is not a friendly crowd by any means of the word. They are not curious at all. They are not excited. This pack, we're told, was greatly annoyed. And they're annoyed, why? They're annoyed because Peter and John are looking a little too much like the one they hung out with. They've been teaching in the temple courts without license. And not only that, Peter's been talking about this concept called resurrection. To the Sadducees, the religious elite, it was an outright falsehood. It was a lie being preached in the heart of their world. They're more than annoyed, they're threatened. So the captain of the temple has them arrested and now after sitting in shackles overnight, this impromptu trial begins. And we read every religious authority seems to be there. The birds of the feather have flocked together. The rulers, the elders, the scribes, they've all gathered for this, this melee. In fact, we're told Annas the high priest has come. Caiaphas, who was instrumental in the trial of Jesus, he's there. This is a who's who. And they all wanted to know one thing. They wanted to know, by what power or by what name did you do this? Who's been influencing you? Now picture um, uh, like this half circle of intimidating faces, right? They're all staring at these three men, Peter and John on trial, full on court case, life and death. And the goal of this question is really to catch these men in the crime of blasphemy. In fact, this was really the oldest play in the book. Back in Luke 20, you might remember, Jesus was teaching in almost the exact same way in the temple courts, preaching the good news, very similar manner. And the chief priest actually asked him the exact same question. Look at this in Luke 2. One day, as Jesus was teaching the, temple and the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up to him and said to Jesus, tell us by what authority you do these things. Who is it that gave you that authority? See, to answer that question at all was a trap. 
For Peter, if you say Jesus, your fate's sealed. And yet here we are, hit the fast forward button. Christ has died. Christ has risen. He's left the disciples with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's rinse and repeat. And somehow it's almost as if Jesus is on trial again. But now things are different because this same Peter who once denied Christ is so filled with the Holy Spirit, he addresses this council with this boldness and clarity that put the entire room on edge. Our passage tells us they were astonished, dumbfounded. And here's why. Here's the punchline. Don't miss this. They recognized they had been with Christ. They recognized they had been with Jesus. See, it's true on both sides of the coin, right? You are the company that you keep. You tell me who your friends are, it'll tell me something about you. If you hang out with the lion in this case, it's not long before you start to roar. Just consider this. How is it that uneducated common men somehow spoke with such poise and grace and courage, with this authority and confidence, that the religious power of the day are astonished? Like the dominant men in all of Jerusalem are, are sitting with their jaws to the floor. They recognized something about these men. That is that they had been with Christ. John Mark Comer recently wrote a book called Practicing the Way. And I don't agree with all of Comer's influence, but I love the premise of this book. Where he asks this very basic question. He wants to know, who is your rabbi? And he lays this out so well, right? He says, the question is not, am I a disciple? The question is, who am I a disciple of? Because we're all following and being influenced by someone or something. We're all in some kind of crowd with some kind of leader. And it's not long as we hang with that leader that we begin to look like them, dress like them, eat like them, live like them. Again, quick thought from Comer. In ancient Jerusalem, at about five years old as a Hebrew child, you would begin school with something called Bet Sefer, the house of the book. And the house of the book was much like elementary school, except for the curriculum was the Torah. And by the time you hit age 12, you will have memorized all five books, the beginning of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Just consider that, what an undertaking that would be now, if you were at the top of your class and you hit all the marks, then you would go to another school called Bet Midrash, the house of learning. And it was in that place that you would grow to memorize all the Hebrew scriptures. You remember when Jesus' found, when Jesus' parents found him in the, in the temple, you remember how old he was? 12 years old. Look at this. After three days, they found him in the temple court sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed. Now, if you're a common student and you made it that far through those two schools, graduated from Hebrew schooling, most would go on with their life. But if you were the best of the best, you would then apply to sit under the apprenticeship of a rabbi. And if you made the cut, your rabbi would say to you, come and follow me. May you be covered in my dust. And now your entire life is focused around him. That included three goals. Again, Comer, to be with your rabbi, to become like your rabbi and to do as your rabbi did. Let me say that again. To be with your rabbi, to become like your rabbi, and to do as your rabbi did. You know, Jesus, of course, was needed no rabbi, right? He was the rabbi. 
And you remember how this went down, right? Almost verbatim, Jesus calls Peter and John in the midst of their day's work, and he comes to these fishermen who never stood a chance, uneducated common men, and he tells them, come, follow me. So it would make sense when we read that they left their nets immediately and followed him, right? Because from their point, from their point of view, this was a once-in-a-lifetime shot. So now here sits this council. Years later, Peter and John breathed, walked, ate, listened, served, and prayed with Christ. They are with him every step of the way. And they had become like him. Not only like him, right? But now it's clear we're learning they did just as their rabbi did. This man lame from birth is now standing before them. There's a miracle, unexplainable. And these unlearned men have now matched, outmatched, I should say, the logic and the authority in the room. Who does that sound like to you? Jesus. Can you imagine? Peter's standing before this absolute threat of the most powerful men in town, and he tells them almost verbatim what Jesus had taught. He said, you really want to know? You want to know whose power, by whose power we did this? Okay, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that this Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the one responsible, the one you crucified, God raised from the dead, and this man now is standing before you well in his name. Now that was shots fired. He all but quotes his rabbi's teaching verbatim when he says this. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and he's now the cornerstone. You remember back in Matthew 21, Jesus had taught his disciples that exact lesson in the parable of the tenants. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me, Matthew 21. And just listen to how similar this, this lesson is. Jesus at the chalkboard, watch this. There was a master of the house, Jesus says, who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower, leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed the other, and stoned yet another. Again, he sent more servants, this time more than the first, and they did the same to them. So finally, he sent the son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him, and we'll get his inheritance. They took him, threw him out of the vineyard, killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with these tenants? They said to them, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Jesus says, have you not read the scriptures? Look at the master rabbi teaching the Bible. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See, notice this. Peter learned firsthand that lesson from his rabbi years prior. And now he's doing what any good student does as he passes the yoke on to the others in the flock. He says, you rejected him. He's the cornerstone. You see where I'm going with this? Eventually, ultimately, we all start looking like who we hang out with. We emulate who we look up to, who we learn from, what we do in life. No action that we take is passive. What you read, what you study, who you hang with, they all shape who we are. You know, as a father, one of my favorite games for years was Simon Says, right? Because you could get your kids to do the dumbest things and then just enjoy the laughter. 
stand on one leg, pick your nose, tap your head, jump up and down. I was always amazed by that, right? No matter how goofy I made it, the girls would follow. Not so much anymore. But here's how Jesus put it. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will certainly be just like him. They recognized these men had been with Jesus. Remember the significance of the cornerstone? You know, a cornerstone still today, it's used in construction to guide the entire project, right? It was the most perfect cut stone that was placed on a corner by which all the other stones rested. It was the foundation. Everything else in the structure aligned to it. And Peter tells this council, you, the builders, rejected that stone. Instead of aligning your values and your life and your way with the cornerstone, Peter tells this crowd, you've made your own way and to your own destruction. But what he says next, I believe what he says next will eventually cost him everything. He says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name in heaven given among men by which we can be saved. See, I think that's a point worth dwelling on. Right? That's a significant claim. Our culture indoctrination still today would, would have us believe this isn't true, right? We're taught from very early age that all beliefs have equal value, that they all lead to the same kind of place. You know, out of curiosity with all the headlines about Google's Gemini this week, I, I decided I would ask it about that claim of Jesus, that Jesus is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. You will not be surprised. It responded by telling me that I should be careful with such an offensive position. And let's be honest, it's not that far off, right? It's a loving statement, but to the world that is perishing, it is an offense. The gospel assaults our sin. The gospel names us as lost. It demands a decision of us to take my autonomy and my rebellious ways and push them aside. It is not a natural path to follow. 1 Peter 2 says, For those who do not believe, he is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. So when Peter says there is salvation in no one else, to the council, that's folly, right? But to the, the disciple speaking, this is the power of God for all who believe. Remember, that concept of salvation is like the central tenet of just about every major world religion there is. It is the primary focus of all faiths. And here's how it works. In Islam, you are saved by living out the teaching of the Quran and the prophet Muhammad, right? When you do what he did, when your good needs outweigh the bad, you're granted paradise. In Hinduism, salvation is achieved by being liberated in the cycle of rebirth. You are saved by selfless devotion, by mastering your, your, uh, your actions to appease the divine. In Buddhism, your salvation is achieved in what? In, in achieving nirvana. You get there by following the eightfold path. See, and there's a common thread in just about every other major religion in this planet, and that is that aside from Christ, aside from Christ, they all seem to carry the same idea. And that is salvation is based entirely on what we do, on how well you lived your life, on whether your good outweighed your bad. It is a report card. See, but what Peter wants this crowd to understand is we've all fallen short. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We could make sacrifices day after day after day. Hebrews tells us it wouldn't cover. See, so Peter says, I'm, I'm not saved by what I've done or not done. I'm saved by what he has done. He is the cornerstone. He is the definition of our salvation. 
See, and Peter can make that claim because he knows firsthand Jesus is the only one who lived a holy life. He's the only one who fulfilled all the law and the prophets. And when you hang out with that rabbi, it's only a matter of time before your life is now like his. Not at all because we want to earn our way or because something that I've done, but because out of gratitude, how can I not follow my leader? And you know they've been with Jesus because they won't speak of salvation by any other name. Just notice the inverse of power here. Those in authority are now the ones shaken. We've got to shut these people up. And those who are supposed to be shaken are now the ones speaking with authority. So the council sends them out of the room. Peter and John, the man healed. They're asking themselves outside of earshot, what are we going to do here? Like it's clear there's a miracle. We can't deny that. That's troubling enough. But now these men are running their mouths in such a way that others are following. Verse 17, we need to stop the spread. So they bring them back in and they tell the apostles, here's the deal. You cannot speak or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. If you do so, bad things will happen. Are we clear? Hmm. You know, if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, you don't understand. You don't have a clue where I've been. What I've seen or what I've heard, who I once was, now who I am. To be with your rabbi meant you left everything his family, his village, his profession, his life. Jesus' chalkboard was his footsteps for him. See, and that's what grace does to a man like Peter, right? It takes a hold of your heart and such that you only have one response. And so Peter and John responded the only way they could. They said, we cannot speak. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Whether you think it's right for us to listen to you rather than the Lord, that's for you to judge. But we are held captive by the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the story back in 2018 of a 26-year-old named John Allen Chow who was killed on this remote island in the coast of India. His goal was to reach uh, this remote trial with the tribe with the, uh, with the gospel. Many had said he was a fool for trying. He was mocked, ridiculed. His first attempt resulted in arrows, one of which hit his Bible, and he retreated back to his boat, back into the sea. He couldn't help it. He knew that he had to return. So he wrote to his followers, he said, I'm probably going to die, but please don't be angry at those who kill me. Days later, he went back. And as he entered into the island, he began shouting in the local dialect, Jesus loves you at the top of his lungs. And John paid the ultimate price. See, our scripture gives us like an introspective kind of lesson, I think. What is this courage of Peter and John? Where did it come from? Standing firm in the midst of this certain threat. They are in complete opposition to the crowd around them, the culture in which they exist. They're telling the religious elite, you destroyed the cornerstone. Repent and believe the good news. See, I think the lesson is, right? We are all being formed every day by someone or something. And who you follow changes who you become. So I wonder, if someone were to describe you, if they were to describe your words, your mannerisms, your actions, your inactions, your countenance, your way of life, whose dust would they recognize on your feet? This rabbi is not just another teacher or a wise influence. He is our salvation. 
And when you abide in him, nothing in your life is the same. Jesus changes how we see every waking moment. He changes how we spend every minute we've been given. He shapes our actions. He shapes our words. We cannot follow him and cease from speaking and living his name. I believe my mother had it to be right. Who you hang out with eventually changes not only how you see life, but how others in this life see you. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were uneducated common men. Praise the Lord. They were astonished, for they recognized they had been with Christ. Here's a question for us this week. How does the world see you? Do they know that you've been with your rabbi? Do they see you becoming more and more like him? Are you living as he did? Or are you following an entirely different rabbi altogether? Would you hear him say, come and follow me to you? Jesus' last words to his followers were so simple. He said, listen to this. The rabbi said, go therefore and make disciples. Take my yoke from me, your rabbi. And in a world where everyone else is following someone else, ask yourselves, who is following me as I put my trust in him? Let's ask God to help us with that this week. Will you pray with me? God, what, what would they see in us? Lord, I, I pray that somehow even in our mistakes, even in our waywardness, our brokenness, Lord, that they would still see Christ in us. That they would recognize that we have been with the rabbi. That they would hear of your yoke that you have taught to us just as you taught your disciples. Lord, that they would see us becoming more like you that they would hear less about me and, and more about your glory. God, we confess that we live in a world that is ripe with distraction. God, we confess we are, we are following all sorts of different paths. So Lord, this morning, would you help us to live into your path? For Lord, the students will never be above their teacher, God, but our heart's desire is to become more like you. Lord, help us to do that this week. Help us to do that next week and the week after and the week after. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you sanctify us in your truth. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. Amen.